Hello, everybody. I'm Mike George. I'm Asavia Greer. And we would like to uh, welcome you to the inaugural, the smashing the bottle on the bow of our new podcast, Comedy Anatomy. We're really excited. Oh, this is a great moment in time. Mm -hmm. uh, we are looking into finding and, and, and searching and digging deep into comedians' thoughts, dreams, failures, the whole gamut. Yeah, Mo and I have talked about this many times. We're really excited. Again, this is our first episode. We'll be talking to Eddie Brill later. But just to give you guys a sense of what we're going to be doing here, I think when we see comedians, we often see them at their best, um, you know, their, their highlight reel, if you will, and showing them really funny and they're witty. And we want to get underneath it a little bit and understand who they are. You know, maybe when things aren't always perfect or the struggles they have. I mean, the life of a comic is, or anyone in the comedy industry for that matter, it's a different world and it can be very tough. And it's a very interesting, gritty person that decides to make comedy a living, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, it's not your average job, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's like, you know, a lot of times what you wanted when you started in comedy, which you're very young, you know, that road didn't go exactly the way you wanted. So are you happy where you ended up? Or the business wasn't what you thought it would be? Or why you got into it beyond just, oh, I always knew I wanted to be funny. But really, what what were you after? I think those are the kind of things we want to learn, right? I, I, I'm with you on that one, Mike. So a little about, a little about us. So, so Mo ran a cartel out of Colombia <laughs> uh, in Medellin for many, many years. No. Uh, not to, just so you don't have to speak for yourself, Mo. I mean, Mo Mike Bootleg from you know the Canadian border, uh, along with Al Capone. I mean, yeah, that's right. I was a, I was a rum runner. I ran booze over the border in the 1930s uh, for the great Al Capone. Uh, now, Mo, you obviously you ran clubs in New York, uh, Boston Comedy Club, uh, Stand Up New York. You grew Laugh up with Dave, Laugh Lounge, right? Growing yeah. up with Dave Chappelle, uh, started yeah. out with Dave Chappelle, right? Yeah, started comedy. Um, we started at 15. He was 14. Um, yeah, that and was uh, my first introduction to really getting into the comedy world. Right. And you're like a staple in the scene. I mean, for people who don't know Mo out there who are listening, um, you know, comics, they turn to Mo for everything. I mean, career advice to personal advice. You'll see listening to this because we've recorded a few people really like they love you, Mo. Like people just really, you know, have so much respect for you. It's nice of you to say, Mike, but uh, yeah. I know you, I know you might not want to hear it, but you know, you got, you're a great person and I'm just, you're going to have to deal with that. I, I uh, love the comments just the same. I think comedy has been a savior of parts of my life when it's definitely been the worst. I think I've laughed through a lot of pain. And I could say that about the comedy business. It's hard, but I think at the same time, there's a lot of joy in it too, you know? Absolutely. And I think what you're saying is so true about, la you know, like laughing through pain. I mean, that is so much about what people even think about comedy, like the sad clown, which I don't think is what we're trying to paint a picture of that all these comedians or people in comedy are depressed all the time or whatever. But it does take a very specific type of person to wanna do this, to wanna be in the comedy scene, to be a stand-up. Mike, you started as a stand-up as well. Yeah, you know, I, well, and that's the thing. I, you know, I think a lot of it is uh, you wanna be seen. Yeah, I, but yeah. Well, you no, started I, on the Canadian scene of stand-up, right? I mean, you were in that. Would yeah, I, mean, uh, I definitely I started in Montreal. Um, and that's how you know, I did just for laughs because in Montreal, which is pretty lucky that was geography. Um, worked in the Toronto scene came down to New York a little bit. And I mean, that's why I love doing the show. I've always been around comedy and involved with comedy. I you know, I moved out to Los Angeles. And then I 
ended up working uh, at, at 20th Century Fox for which before it was bought by Disney uh, in film marketing and mostly worked in comedy. So, and that's why I think we were so excited to do this together because we yes. just have a love and respect for comedians, right? And it's two different um, um, eyes looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we definitely come from a different place uh, besides different countries. You know, we're, we're not just talking about stand-ups. We're hopefully going to interview comedy directors and writers. And Also, too, I think like yourself, it leads you into other things. You know, like you're direct, you know, directing, but you started out as a stand-up. Like some stand-ups become some great, incredible writers, mm -hmm. directors, uh, producers. Um, sometimes baristas, can... some are great baristas, <laughs> right? I'm not even kidding. That's a, it's a tough business, Mo. Bartenders, bartenders, uh, <laughs> wait staff. I mean, it's yeah, limitless hey, where you'll find great comedians. Yeah. Um, well, and you, and you know what? Kidding aside, there is a bit of luck into it. You know, there's a little bit of luck. I mean, you you want to say no, no, no. I, no matter what, I'm going to be unstoppable. But the right, you know, the right time and the right place does unfortunately yeah. matter. It, it breaks people down. I've seen guys who had a strong hole when they started and they looked like they were going to be superstars and then they end up, yeah, that's it. Gone. Yeah, that, it's a really, it's a really interesting way to choose to be on this planet. And I think that's why we're so interested in talking to people because they are, these are not boring people that we're going to try and, uh, try and yeah. get to the core of, you know? Yeah. Um, in fact, our first guest today, we're very excited and honored to have the very, very talented Eddie Brill. That's right, Eddie Brill, incredible comedian, worked at Letterman. He's worked with so many comedians. He's a staple in the comedy business and his contribution to this business is huge. So please welcome Eddie Brill. So Eddie, I'm gonna ask you that typical question. How did you get started in comedy? Okay, well, I was a fan of comedy, my parents, had comedy albums in the house. I saw Carlin on The Tonight Show and I was like, oh my God, he's my hero. And I followed everything he did, but you know, I never thought I'd do it. So I went to college to do broadcast journalism. And the first week of college, I met all these very funny people and we ended up forming a comedy group. That's how I kind of started. We did sketch and improv and I was in the very first skit and I got the very first laugh. And the feeling of getting that laugh from a big crowd was so rewarding and it's like heroin you chase it for the rest of your life right yeah so eddie are you more someone who just goes with the flow and you're like i'm doing this for now and we'll see where it goes yeah so if you make plans then it gets in the way of something that could happen i mean i never knew thought i'd be a comedian i never thought i'd do a million things that i've done in my life you know um i didn't even think i'd be here tonight with you guys i had other plans <laughs> no i uh i didn't know what i wanted so i just kept moving forward I kept challenging myself. For me, I always felt that by being free, that gave me the opportunity to do something I never expected. One of the things that was, you know, changed my life was working for the David Letterman show. I never planned it. I never thought I would do it. It was not something I wanted to do. It wasn't something that I was like, oh, one day I'm going to work there. But in the middle of it, while I was working it, I was like, oh my God, look where, you know, oh my, that's David Letterman. You know, I'd be like, yeah, right. you know, and I never took it for granted. I was just like, oh, you know, like there's that guy, he's right, right there. For me, it worked best to not have a plan, but to have an essence, I guess. And that's so freaky. It, no, no, it's good. You know, but no, I, I mean, it makes sense. Eddie. It's like, but you know, that fear that leads you when you graduate college, you're like, I bet they get a job. How am I going to sustain? How am I going to survive? But yet and still, you had the balls to say, I'm going to do this with 
nothing in my pockets or maybe, you know, whether you work somewhere here and there, but I don't know how you maintain that to get to that point. I think you have to trust your gut. I mean, I know you have to trust your gut because in our head, we can rationalize anything we want. And, yeah. but in our gut never lies. Whenever mm -hmm. I'm, I trust my instincts, they never lie. Anytime I've ever gone outside of my instincts or gone away from it, it hasn't worked. So I, I have trusted my instincts along the way and it's really paid off mm -hmm. in a beautiful way. You're like innately spiritual. It's weird because and I'm not, I know because you know what? It took me a I'm listening long. to myself going, what the fuck did I just no, say? No, no, no. But you know what's funny? <laughs> the way you say, you say it matter of factly and you're like, some people make plans. They're even teaching in business schools now, like this whole idea of where do you want to be in five years? It doesn't really work that way. They, they've done all these studies now that show these things that force plans. Like, I'm going to do this. And very rigid is not how life works. You, it's much better to flow, right? But it took me what you were doing at 20. And I can't speak for Mo, but years to understand that, hey man, just relax, let go. You can't make things happen that are out of your control. And it doesn't sound like, I mean, look, I'm sure you're human and you've had things you've wanted that are out of your control because that's human, but it sounds like you innately don't, aren't driven by shit you can't control. That's the thing you learn that you can't control the things you can't control. And to put the work in so that when the opportunity comes up, you're ready because you put the work in. You know, as a stand-up comedian, people say, well, how, how do you become a good stand-up? And they say, well, there's three things. It's stage time, stage time, and stage time. Because that's really the only teacher. You know, so you can workshop comedy. You can talk about it with your friends. But the, the experience is the main thing that's going to get you to the level you need to get to. And Correct. then the more you do it, the more you're ready for whatever comes up. At the beginning, you're not ready. Someone heckles, you're not ready. If someone, uh, you know, uh, coughs in the middle of your joke, you're not ready to, with the rhythms and how to make things work and control the rhythm of the room. And those are things that are just psychological that you learn as a performer how to handle. You don't even have to be schooled in it. It just comes to you because that's who you are. That's the kind of brain you have. Right. So can you talk about your evolution from how you approached comedy when you first started and how over the years it's changed and evolved? Like well, I, I've noticed because I've seen so many comedians over the years, you know, on videotape and live, that I was able to see myself in a lot of these comedians, young or old. And what happens at the beginning, 99% of the time, is we act like our favorite comedian. We do the rhythms of other comedians because that's all we know. We don't know ourselves. We're not really taught in most cases to know ourselves and to find out who we really are. So, you know, you learn to be able to show your vulnerability. And when you show that, that's when you really have your strength. When you go up on stage and you're able to tell your truth, that's when you're the most powerful. To interject on the other part of comedy, which is substance, drinking, how did you deal with that? Because that was an era of drug use. So how did you get through that era without being influenced by those things and those people that would maybe say, hey, this might make your comedy better. This may, may step up your game. You right. may see things differently. You know, and so how did you get through that part? It wasn't easy. It, it took, uh, took work. It took fortitude to get away from it. You know, I'm lucky to be alive. You know, I did a lot of drugs, but I never partied before I went on stage. I mean, I have a mm -hmm. kind of few occasions and they have turned out to be negative experiences. So mm -hmm. the best way to be your true self is to just go out there as sober as you can.
Now, it's okay to experiment every once in a while. I remember what George Carlin said. He never wrote high. He just edited. He got high after he wrote it <laughs> and edited. Yeah, I can see that. So when I was in L.A., there was a mm. lot of drugs, a lot of booze, a lot of partying, a lot of famous people. I was blessed to be part of Kinison's group of people. Oh, I didn't know that. You hung yeah. out with Kinison and Well, the first night I went on stage there, Kinison saw me and sent one of his right-hand guys to go grab me and bring me backstage to meet him. And it was just really nice. He was very, very good to me. What year was that? Um, I started in 86 in LA and he convinced right. me to move out there at least half the time. Wow. Was he at his height at this point? Yeah. Wow. And wow. with. Height and width. Yeah. But anyway, he was really top notch and he attracted all these superstar actors and musicians and porn stars. So we were living this crazy life. But I never partied before I went out on stage. Mm -hmm. I would afterwards through the night and then sleep all day, get up. But, you know, I was worse, worse for wear. I wasn't my sharpest because my body was a little bit racked. So when I knew that this was not working for me. I kind of right. sensed it. And I told him I was going to move back to New York. And he was kind of disappointed. He said, you know, we have a great thing here. And I was like, I, I just got to get out. And I realized, first of all, Kinison's the big star. And I'm living off of his right. you know, stuff. Mm. You know, it was great. And I got a lot of stage time. But I needed to go back out there and have my life and create the things that work for me. And, and you were okay with that too, right? At that time, like if you can gravitate to someone famous like that and ride their coattails, I mean, yeah. that's ideal for some people. And, and for you to make that decision, how did you come to that? Because it was so much partying mm -hmm. that I didn't find the time to be creative. And I would write on stage, which was fine, but I wasn't really my sharpest and right. I was serious about this I loved it I still do love it till this day Kinison wasn't happy with me at first and I said I just I need to go to switch gears a little bit you explain really well the art of comedy and also how to find your voice well for me it, what I've learned and I learned it from watching Chappelle is you just tell your truth and that you don't try to please the audience you do what you love. And if it pleases the audience, that's even better. Being rich and famous shouldn't be goals. It should be, you know, what happens byproducts of, of what you're doing. So the mm -hmm. key is really is to put the stage time in to do the writing, whether you write on stage, whether you write at home, whether you do both, you know, to put all the time in and get as much stage time as possible. That's really the mm -hmm. key. And, you know, before I worked at Letterman in New York, I would average between 550 to 600 shows a year. Wow. Get on stage every night. That's I would, a lot of shows. That's like, I know, Le and I like would, LeBron James, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's how, that's how you do it. I do three or four sets a night during the week. And then on the weekend, I do like six or seven on a Friday and seven or eight on a wow. Saturday. And then I'd sleep all day Sunday. You know? <laughs> that's amazing. And, but through that, like when you first started, I'm sure, did you just write and then... Yeah, you know, I was a Carlin fan, so I've always loved language. I always loved wordplay. I did a lot of impressions as a kid. I played the guitar a little bit and changed the words to some songs. So I did a lot of very sophomoric stuff at the beginning. But I had a decent attitude about it. I was working with a lot of really good people. That's the key is to really surround yourself with, with positivity. Is it true you had 10 appearances on Letterman? Yeah, I did the show. I, wow. I did the show a bunch of times before I booked it. 
I became the booker in 2001. And then, you know, I did the show like one or two times. And then I didn't do it for a long time because I felt like guilty, like I'm booking it. You know, I shouldn't be right. doing it. So, so when you were, when, did you tape yourself and submit the tape to yourself? <clears> I had to, um, yeah, I had to approve myself. <laughs> I was very hard on myself. <laughs> <She wasn't surprised. laughs> they, I was really angry with myself. And, um, you blew it. Me. Yeah. So, so what do I have to do? You have one chance with me and I blew it. Talk to a friend of mine. Um, yeah, I had to give it to the producers and they had to go over it. Right, right. It sounds like on one level it was you don't want to unconsciously take material that you're like oh, i thought of this yeah. joke but you saw it three years earlier in one tape and then also the idea of people thinking you're booking yourself right there was someone who didn't do well on the show that i didn't book and that person wasn't invited back and then that person begged to come back on the show and they got another chance again not through me the person didn't do well again so when that person, instead of saying, look, I have to take responsibility, I didn't do the job, I, I had two chances, they said, well, it's Eddie Brill's fault. I called him up to see if he, I can get booked again. He said he was saving the spot for himself. Wow. You know, and yeah. even if I was that kind of an asshole, why would I say it to this person? <laughs> why do you guys think, because you guys both have run clubs, why do comedy scenes always end up like junior high? You know what I mean? <laughs> they're all, they're mostly at the time, especially when we're talking about grown men. I mean, what do you mean like specifically? Cause there's a lot of stuff in junior high. Well, yeah. I would say the, the back talk, the cattiness. I think that's in any job. I think I was referring to when you said this guy made this thing up because you apparently said that they said that he right. heard- Well, it's like, ego and insecurity. We grew up in a fear-based society. It's been like that from the beginning. You know, the patriarch, it's been since the beginning of times, every religion, patriarchy and then it goes into this sort of like insecurity and ego it just carries through over generations over generations it's a very insecure life to be mm -hmm. a stand-up comedian and you have a gig one day and you don't have a gig the next day so i think that out of insecurity a lot of people will act irrationally mm -hmm. and and that's what happens in some cases but most of the time Guys like Kinnison will say, hey, you know, I'm going to help you. Or Robert Schimmel came and grabbed me and said, let me take you on the road with me. And you can book my apartment with me because I'm not going to be there that much. So um, support. support. Yeah, there's so much support. I've been helped by so many incredible comedians in my life. And I vowed to do that, to help comedians. And that's all I've tried to do. When I was at Letterman, I did everything I could and was proud of everything I did there to help mm -hmm. comedians. There was so much stuff behind the scenes that I did that no one will ever know or see, and that's okay. All they have to know is that I fought for comedy and comedians because I'm a comedian. You're a rare guy, and just all of the banter and the negativeness sometimes that would take place with certain established comics and some up-and-coming guys. And so a lot of times the established guys would beat down the younger comics because, yeah, yeah you, you don't deserve to be up here. But Eddie, you've always had a love for everyone, wherever they are. Like, <laughs> it's about respect. You, you know, yeah. it's such a hard job that I respect anyone who tries it. You know, in your experience working with so many comedians, there's this brass ring, right? You even brought up how we're all competitive and... There's this idea of fame, whether it's like where Chappelle is now or Eddie Murphy or Richard Pryor. Mo and I were talking about this earlier. So again, it was all about the original question is what is success? It's what you feel success is. Mm. You know, I grew mm. up with no money. We were very poor. We had food stamps that tied us over until I worked three jobs. We had nothing and we had so much love and so much fun and that was the key no but even you saying that you say you grew up and you were very poor but you were so happy and all this stuff 
But I'm saying you can't make yourself famous. It's out of your control. And what you have said on this podcast is <laughs> that you can own, you should be happy with what you can control. It's not good that we, we don't focus on the art and the love and we focus so much more on getting ahead and making it and getting the agent and all this crap, which is very stressful. Uh, I mean, just into you, what you're saying, Mike, because we do talk about this often. My father was a famous preacher, right? He was a civil rights preacher. Right. Uh, he worked with Martin Luther King. But the one thing my father always said to me, I asked him one time, I said, Dad, you could have opened a church up and made money like, you know, mm -hmm. I said, well, right. I could have opened a church up, but I was doing this for the people. I was doing this because I wanted you to have a right to vote. I wanted you to be able to go somewhere without being beaten up or persecuted. I, I was fighting for you and your sisters and brothers and whoever. But I got that point <laughs> when he said that to me about life in general is something you just said, Eddie, and the question you put out, Mike. And, and that's what I came up with, which is you, you do, there's a purpose, there's a higher purpose sometimes that drives you. You can either embrace it or you can just suffer. Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> and one well life said. that we know about. So why not really do what you love? Like wake up each day going, oh my God, I'm going to do what I love today. Right. And, you know, like I can't, we can't change our fathers from who they were. We just have to understand them for why they chose the paths that they chose as our, our children have to understand, you know, what we do. And as long as there's a respect and integrity mm -hmm. involved with it, that's really the key. You know, right. the best lesson is to have strength, to have a backbone. And that I got from my mother. My mother, you know, never had money, was always sick her whole life, but was hilarious and the life of the party. And, you know, she taught me a lot about humanity, which was really mm. great. I remember right. seeing this really fat lady and a skinny, handsome husband on the streets in Brooklyn. And he was dressed really nice and she wasn't. And I said, how are they together? And my mom said, she thinks she's sexy. So he thinks he's, she's sexy. Right. And that's really <laughs> So if you go out there to a crowd that's lousy or whatever, and you act like you're the best comedian ever, you know, the audience is like, well, this comedian must be the best comedian ever. <laughs> he's owning it. I remember one night at the comedy store, the first night I got to do the main room during the weekend when you would get, you'd split the door with Mitzi Shore. The main room was a big check, you know, in those days. Well, I looked at the lineup and the lineup was Roseanne, Paul wow. Mooney, uh, you know, Louis Anderson, every big star in killers, yeah. and me. She was giving me my first shot. And I freaked out and I was going to walk home because I don't belong on this show. I'm not that kind mm. of comedian. I'm not known. These, every one of these people household names. And I talked to a friend of mine who came with me outside and she said, look, they don't know that you don't, that you're not famous. They, if they're all these famous people are on there, so just act like you're famous. Just act like you're, not that you're famous, but act like you know what you're doing. Yeah, you act like there. you belong yeah. there. Yeah. So I yes. went, okay. So I went out and I followed, um, you know, uh, who did I follow? Uh, I was just said his name, um, Paul Mooney. Right. And Paul Mooney, like, Paul you know, Mooney, yes. suck, white people suck, you know, that one joke after another. So I came out and I go, you know, white people suck. And the crowd was <laughs> <laughs> So just to ask you a totally different question, what mistake have you made in your life that you, that you learned the most from? 
What's something that you're like, man, that was big for me. The biggest mistake I made in my life was part ego and part trusting. And I, I trusted the New York Times. A guy came to, to me mm-hmm. and wanted to do an, an interview about stand-up comedy on The Letterman Show. Okay. He was recommended by a person, a writer who worked at the show who wrote an article about me. Now, I didn't tell the show that I was going to be interviewed because I've done a thousand interviews and I wanted to, them to open up the paper and be proud that I was in there. And, you know, but reality, I should have gone to the show and said, hey, look, the New York Times is coming in. They're going to interview me. But I didn't. I, want, I, I was confident in who I was. And I figured writers always have your best interest in mind. They want to know what a comedian needs to know mm-hmm. uh, in comedy. So I had a great interview with this person. And then when it came out, it was the nastiest interview. It appears that they had an agenda and that they thoroughly worked my words around their agenda. So anyway, the article, the guy wrote the article and said, and Amy Schumer made a quote and it said, Eddie Brill only books middle-aged white Midwestern comics. Okay. Well, I had given the author the sheet of the 19 comedians that I had booked that year. And not, there was only one comic who matched that. It was Jake Johansson, who really is from Iowa, <laughs> middle-aged, but he had done the show like 40, 50 Wait, times. He's pretty well known. Yeah, he's, he's all right. And, uh, but mostly the, the, there were eight comics who got their break that year. A female comic who was in her 40s who had never gotten a break in her life because wow. in our business, People, when you a woman gets to be like 30, they yes. push you out. But I was yes. giving this comedian a break because I thought she was so hilarious to do that. Though that wasn't talked about. Most of the comedians that I had booked were African-American. Uh, there was one Bangladeshi person. There was a Chinese comedian from China. You know, so Amy's statement was turned out to be something. She was wrong. She made a mistake in her assessment. But see, here would have been a better thing if we would have had a symposium about the lack of female comics in late night television and, and had all the bookers from all the shows together and had a discussion and had a win-win come out of it, that would have been positive. But yes. instead, it was an attack. You know, the Letterman show had gotten in trouble for uh, him having an affair. And then it, right after that was an article about he didn't have any female writers. So the timing was horrible. And I ended up having one of the most evil times in my life. And I regret that as the number one. You know, I have been so caring for comedy and so fighting for comedians and helping female comics, you know, since 84 is comedy. It threw me for a loop. It it really, you know, and I lost the job in that. And they apologized later. Letterman personally apologized later. And just said, look, we were in a situation and it, the timing was horrible. So if you want to say what's the biggest thing you regret is that I, I didn't go to the Letterman producer and say, look, the New York Times is coming in. They could have probably protected me. Right. You know, you know and that's a, a mistake. But how did you process it? How did you cu- get over it? How did you? It was very hard to do because it was a, you know, I was mm-hmm. being like, I felt like I was helping an old lady cross the street and I got arrested for putting a crease in her dress. You know, I used to write for Reader's Digest and would recommend female comics and Variety magazine. Uh, every year they called me about recommending young comedians who are going to be future stars. They never quoted me word for word, but a half to three quarters of the acts that would show up in all the articles mm. um, were comics I recommended. So these people didn't didn't have my back. 
So I just felt like, you know, the Variety didn't write a nice thing like, hey, you know, I work with Eddie Brill and he always mentioned female comics is great. And they just found negativity where they wanted to find it. You know, it was a a lose-lose situation that I put myself in. And then eventually I just, all I realized is, look, I know who I am. Most of the comics that I know know who I am. Right, exactly. It was upsetting for all of us. It was upsetting for the comedy community too. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of comedians who I had been working with, men and women, who didn't get to be on the show because I, you know, took over i had i had recommended a couple of them but you know it's just it was a shame because it got to a place it was sort of the very early cancel culture kind right. of thing that's yeah. yes which was really a shame because in reality i was fighting for comedians and men and women comics always but you know the way i got through it was just to know who i am walk with my head proud and also with the great incredible friends that were there supporting right. me from the beginning and you know what? In the reality, I learned a lot from it. Right. And wow. it's so interesting because cancel culture, which is so big now, and yeah. everyone, you know, but now it seems like you can say one thing, men, men or women, it doesn't matter. If you say one thing out of turn, or not even out of turn, it could just be like a, uh, like a, a part of a sentence. You know what I mean? And well, then they'll just right. clickbait it. It's a very yeah. scary time to be a comedian if you care about that. You can even equate it to sports like Kaepernick. I right. mean, Kaepernick was a sacrificial lamb. Yeah. And now right. everybody's kneeling and no problem. Everybody no problem. has a hand yeah. up. If you look but, back in time and you realize that this guy was incredible. There was this right. quote where Melania said, you know, look, peaceful protest, please, please, please. And some guy wrote, hey, Kaepernick tried peaceful protest and your husband called him a son of a bitch. So, you know, yeah. stay, stay yeah. out of this one, Melania. The <laughs> third lady. Yeah. 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 Well, it's true. I mean, you know, um, I mean, Kaepernick absolutely, you know, really stood for something too. But even in stand up, like whether it's Bill Burr or Dave Chappelle, like sometimes part of their acts, the people will be offended and then they'll, they'll label them and then it's all over the internet and you can weather the storm, which is fine. But it's always this line now. Comedy used to be truly uh, free space. And, and it I, still should be and it can be. Mm-hmm. I believe it can be. And, you know, I mean, there's stuff you learn. You evolve as a human. You know, um, like Kevin Hart is an example. I, don't know, I think we talked about it. Kevin Hart had done a, um, you know, had said some homophobic stuff. And there's really no room for that. But he eventually realized what he did wasn't great. And he evolved and he became a better comic and a better human because of it. We should celebrate people evolving. Well, the yeah. thing is, it feels like, and I think, look, I, I love what you just said in the sense of you, we do evolve and we do learn. And there well, are how would you not- guys to say about uh, the uh, Seinfeld's guy, um, uh, what happened at the Laugh Factory? Oh, you, uh, you mean yeah, the guy I thought, I thought he would, you know, I wasn't there, but I heard what he had said and I didn't really respect what he had said. And it appeared that he was deep down inside had these certain... It appeared that he had certain kind of feelings that were antithetical to what the way we should feel as human beings. Yeah, and I and I, I agree that he he wasn't being funny. He was just ranting and out of anger, and it was very uncomfortable to watch and yeah. it seemed inappropriate. Should he have used a bigger word, maybe a, a, a more intelligent word, to this? 
what do you disguise think? his feelings? Yeah, I mean, I what mean, do you think? Well, I mean, when you use these words, I mean, of course he was wrong. I mean, but he yeah. is feeling those feelings. I rather, I'm glad to know maybe that's how he really felt. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I've done, like I remember early as a younger kid or whatever, if I did a Chinese accent, it would come off racist or car like a cartoon I saw or, you know, what people would like, you know, horrible you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's kind of thing that Mickey Rooney did or whatever. But as I got older, as a comic, I had a, I wrote a bit where I used Chinese words in it and I learned the Chinese words so that when I did them, it was not making fun of them. It still made the bit funny because the idea was funny. And that one, that one moment that 10 times in my career that there was a Chinese person in the audience, they were like, oh my God, that guy learned, respected me enough to learn the real Chinese and not mock it. Wow. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah right. And, and that's intent. I mean, that's the thing, the subtleties are gone. So now it's, it feels like Salem witch trials where there are these people, and there's nothing wrong with like people improving, like you said, about coming more evolved, about learning and growing. I think that's fantastic, I think. Yeah. And if it means words become inappropriate because there's good reason, fine. But it feels like there's this gotcha culture. We all talk about this, right? It's this gotcha yeah. going to get you hot. Yes. And yeah. people are waiting, especially like, I always say I see these young comics or just comics that are newer and they can say whatever they want and they don't care. But you know, if they break, somebody's going to go through everything, their threads and Instagram or not, you know, Instagram probably, but Twitter right. and look for something. They said this. And, and if they can find something, they'll create something else yes. to to have that happen. You know, people are, right. there are angry, bitter, martyrs, yeah. you know, people like that in the yes. world. And you'll get that. And that's, you know, especially nowadays on the computer, you can hide behind the computer. People never know what you look like or yes. who you are or whatever. And right. you could create negativity. And right. you learn to, uh, the, one of the key phrases I learned is you starve the negativity and you feed the, the positivity. You give oxygen only to the things that are positive. It's really hard when you have those things in your life that you can't do anything about that feel unjust and you have to learn to let it go or it'll eat you up. Right. Uh, that was the whole thing at the beginning about rolling with the punches, being fluid. You know, the, mm -hmm. the more fluid you can be, something negative happens and you, you know, you're hurtling through space and then you hit something hard. It ch changes your shape. So now you turtle in this new shape. So you right. just learn how to, to keep moving forward. Whatever happens in my life, I'm I'm a pretty happy guy. I've I've had an. That's amazing why I want to be down with you, Eddie. That's why. That's why <laughs> we, we we want we want some of that, Eddie. Man, we we love you, man. You got it, right. and it's mutual, you know. Hey, hey, Mike. I think you sound better when you close the show out. You want me to close show. it out? <laughs> I mean, you ha you have a nice radio voice, bro. I, I, think, I think it's because you... I have this giant-ass microphone. Yeah, you do. It's <laughs> like a, little, <laughs> a little phallic. Thank you so much, Eddie, for coming on. You're very open and honest with us today. You are our first guest. It means a great deal to us. Yeah, we're honored. Really grateful that you, you uh, agreed to come on. So thank you. It's my pleasure. Anytime. Okay, Mo, let them know how they can support us. Make sure to subscribe to Comedy Anatomy and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Comedy Anatomy and on Twitter at Comedy underscore Anatomy.